Joe Biden is on his first tour of the Middle East as US president. He has promised to reset ties and embark on a new relationship. So what can he achieve and will he be held back by political pressures at home? I'm Nastasia Tay and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests. In Arlington, Virginia, we have Khaled Al-Gindi. He's the senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and also the author of Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. From London, we're joined by Andreas Krieg, a senior lecturer in defense studies at King's College London. And in Birmingham is Scott Lucas, professor emeritus at Birmingham University and founder of EA Worldview, a news analysis website. A very warm welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. I want to start with the timing of this. Now, Biden's last trip to the region was, what, over 12 years ago as vice president? And he's obviously been president for, what, a year and a half now. It hasn't gone unnoticed that it's taken some time for this trip to take place. Now, the administration obviously says they have plenty of reasons to be there, but given the oil price and the proximity of US midterms, I would guess that regional allies aren't under any illusions about the urgency of this visit. So let me start with you, Andreas. Uh, what's the US relationship like now with its Middle Eastern allies? I know the word transactional has been used to, to describe that relationship of late. Well, yes, um, I think the biggest problem that the United States has at the moment is that it's too much preoccupied by dom domestic polarization. It's uh, kind of almost paralyzed by what's going in Washington, the 6th of uh, January committee. Uh, a lot of pressure also on, on Biden to deliver. He hasn't really delivered on much. You know, the, the Amer America is in an unprecedented crisis domestically. And now his, this trip to the Middle East is obviously coming uh, against this backdrop. So he's kind of trying to show that, uh, you know, he's, he wants to have a foreign policy success. He wants to show that in terms of energy policy, uh, energy politics as well as supply chain uh, security, he's actually someone who's getting things done. But he has very little to show for, for what he's actually been promising. And it, it's also kind of doubtful that, he's, that we, he will be able to actually show anything uh, in terms of success uh, on, on, the, on this very particular trip. Mm. So uh, Biden is very much uh, with a back against the wall. We've got midterm elections, as you were already saying. Uh, and uh, so people are looking at him and saying, what is he actually, what does, does he have to show for himself? And he's, leaving, he's entering into a region that, and that's not just the Biden problem, that for three consecutive presidents has actually been left to its own devices and where vacuums have been filled by local players and by extra regional players, such as Russia and China as, as competitors of the United States. So the United States is coming as a superpower to the region, but no longer really is received on the ground and perceived on the ground as a real superpower because it's really uh, very impotent now. A very different Middle East from Biden's last trip. Now, he started his trip in Israel, and his last visit obviously wasn't uncontroversial. Uh, Scott, what do you think Tel Aviv is hoping to get out of this visit? Might the actual visit, the presidential visit of, of someone like Joe Biden, boost Yair Lapid's profile ahead of the November elections there? Well, I mean, certainly Yair Lapid, and indeed any Israeli politician, will try to get some type of mileage uh, for domestic reasons ahead of the elections, provided being seen with Biden isn't too toxic. Mm. But no, the overriding Israeli concerns are, let's keep the focus on Iran and who needs to talk about Palestine. And by that, I mean, of course, that th there are no serious Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. There haven't been any of substance since 2014. And I would argue there haven't been any significant Israeli-Palestinian negotiations since 2009, the first year when Joe Biden was, was vice president. And Israel doesn't want that to change. 
Uh, Israel wants to maintain its autonomy, including over the occupied territories. Uh, they made a token gesture uh, just today saying, all right, we'll delay, not cancel, but delay the building of some settlements in the, uh, in the West Bank. But pretty much Israel has the upper hand in Palestine, and no Arab state, let alone the United States, is going to challenge that at this point. And of course, what does Israel really want to talk about? They want to talk about this, this block to contain Iran. Some would argue push Iran back. And that, of course, is a block which has really been forged with the U.S. in a sense off to the side with Arab states such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I want to get to some of those regional dynamics in a minute, but I do also want to talk about the peace process between Israel and Palestine, so-called peace process. The administration, the Biden administration, says it's still working towards that. Now, Khaled, I know you yourself have been involved in previous talks between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Now, given the current situation and the U.S. response to the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akhleh, how are the Palestinians actually viewing Joe Biden as the president at the moment? Well, first of all, I, I think there's a deep sense of disappointment in the Biden administration uh, on the part of certainly the Palestinian uh, uh, leadership, but but much more so the Palestinian people, although uh, expectations were already pretty low uh, on, on that front. As far as the leadership is concerned, um, they were hoping for a much more proactive and engaged administration after four years of Trump that had really set back American-Palestinian relations uh, to an unprecedented low. Uh, and uh, so far, most of the Trump legacy remains intact, with mm. the exception of uh, you know, opening direct ties with the, the Palestinian leadership, restarting some aid to the Palestinians, which is something the administration frequently uh, likes to play up. Um, but other than that, uh, the bulk of the Trump legacy on Jerusalem, on the U.S. consulate uh, in Jerusalem, on uh, the closure of the PLO mission, and frankly, even on settlements, uh, things like uh, the uh, uh, former Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo's policies to legitimize settlements, to treat products made in Israeli settlements as made in Israel, um, to do away with the term occupied territories. These are uh, doing away with the legal memo on the illegality of Israeli settlements. All of these things are still on the books. And I think Palestinians are kind of scratching their heads and saying, mm. why haven't these policies been reversed? Well, let me bring Andreas in here. Andreas, as Khaled's been saying, it seems that the Biden administration has largely embraced a lot of the Trump era policies. So was that a considered decision on the part of that administration? Or has Biden just been distracted by a whole load of other issues? Well, yes, he has been distracted. But I would say this administration is very clueless when it comes to foreign and security policy more widely. But particularly on the Middle East, he ha it hasn't delivered. Uh, he's written an op-ed in the Washington Post this week or last week uh, where it becomes quite clear that there isn't a strategy, there isn't a vision, there isn't something that America can actually deliver. And, and the problem is there's a growing say-do gap. Uh, and and uh, what I mean by that is what America preaches and what it actually does is, is becoming ever more overtly, uh, uh, you know, that becomes an ever-growing discrepancy between the, these two things. And I think what we, what we see, particularly on the issue of Palestine, is that there hasn't been a reversal on, on, on any of the Trump policies. There is actually a continuation 
of a path that has been going, you know, has been set for decades already. And all we see is that presidents like Obama or Trump or Biden, they might have put an added different nuance to it. But at least Donald Trump was someone who was kind of as destructive as he was. He was very overtly destructive. You knew what you were getting. With Biden, there's a lot of ambiguity about, on the on one hand, saying we are interested in engaging with the Palestinians, we're interested in engaging with Iran. But when it comes to actually doing something about it, uh, you, you know, realpolitik is hitting. And that same is true for Saudi Arabia. Now, a lot of narrative about human rights, conditionalities, but when it comes to actually delivering on it, there is a continuation of the status quo that is, is you know, a very, very much, uh, very, very puzzling for, for both sides of the divide in the Middle East. Uh, Iran doesn't know what to expect. The Saudis don't know what to expect. UAE don't know what to expect. Israel doesn't know what to expect. And that sort of creates this ambiguity and, and a state of, of leaderless uh, 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 chaos in the region, uh, which other people, you know, have, have been willing to fill. Other nations have been willing to fill. Uh, Iran was able to act on as, as they see fit. UAE is acting as they see fit. We've got Russia and China moving in where mm -hmm. the Americans have withdrawn. The problem is, what does America actually want? And that's the question the Biden administration hasn't answered in the same way that the previous two presidents haven't answered that question either. Well, I'm interested in how U.S. politics actually um, relates to the region and how regional leaders are viewing the U.S. Because I see Biden's approval rating at home is what now just 33 percent. And a majority of Democratic voters are, are saying that he should not be on the ballot in 2024. So now, given the possible change of administration um, in not too long, Scott, how do you think regional leaders are actually viewing Biden? Well, I've got a lot of contacts in Saudi Arabia who, from day one of the Biden administration, simply scoffed at Biden and his advisors. Um, they had very bad relationship with Biden and the Obama administration, and they expected this to carry on. Uh, they see the Biden administration as being too weak on Iran. Uh, they see Biden as being too weak in general. And the Israelis, similarly, although Biden talks a lot about the primacy of Israel in the relationship, they don't necessarily see Biden as a strong leader, especially in the context of where the U.S. is with a divided uh, domestic scene. But I, I think, and I agree with a lot of what Andreas says, but let me add one point just for discussion where I, I do disagree with him a bit. I, I don't think Biden and the administration are clueless here. I think they know what is going on in the Middle East, but I think they realize they don't have leverage. And by that, I mean, a few years ago, after Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated, probably on the orders of, of Mohammed bin Salman, there was leverage. The Turks wanted something to be done. Other countries were appalled by what was happening, and you could have acted then. Of course, Donald Trump didn't. Move forward to 2022, and the fact is, is that well, three things, why the U.S. doesn't have leverage. First of all, it has been outflanked by the maneuvers between Israel and the Arab states. Secondly, uh, it faces, as long as it puts its priority on containing Iran and doesn't reach a settlement with Iran over the nuclear program, then Saudi Arabia has leverage on that issue. And thirdly, uh, is the question of the oil supply in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in a conflict which is likely to be protracted. So if your opponents have leverage, not your opponents, if your interlocutors have leverage, like the Saudis and the Israelis, you don't go in to antagonize them. Biden, in other words, is playing on the defensive, not because he's clueless, but simply because American power is not exactly very powerful in the current context of regional politics. Well, one of the things that Biden has really come under fire for at home in the U.S. is this next stop on his trip, is Saudi Arabia. Uh, Khaled, you're sitting in the U.S. now at a very tricky time for Biden. How are U.S. voters viewing this whole trip? 
Well, it's it's interesting because actually the polls show, uh, even though usually the public is uh, public opinion is pretty disengaged from foreign policy, um, and they but they generally like presidents to to sort of lead on foreign policy matters. The the polls currently that I've seen are showing uh, quite a lot of uh, disapproval for this trip. I think mm. part of that the problem is most Americans, like I think many analysts in Washington and elsewhere, and diplomats and others, don't really understand the purpose of this of this trip. Is it a photo op? Uh, is it really? Is it about oil prices? The administration uh, keeps telling us that it's not. Is it about domestic politics, sort of posturing uh, with Israel um, ahead of a midterm election uh, and using Israel to market its uh, uh, the administration's um, uh, ties to Saudi Arabia as a way maybe to blunt criticism? You know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, the American public simply doesn't understand. Uh, I mean, first of all, they don't really care about foreign policy, mm -hmm. even though foreign policy uh, directly affects their lives. Uh, just have a look, of course, at uh, at oil prices and mm -hmm. gas prices. Um, the administration has not done a good job of explaining the linkage between these foreign uh, crises and the situation back at home. And I think as a result, most Americans just don't understand. And as a result, uh, end up kind of uh, disapproving. Well, as you say that, the White House has been dismissing criticism of Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. Here's what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had to say about that. When it comes right down to it, isn't this trip proof that strategic interests, including oil and gas, when it comes right down to it, are always going to override something like human rights? America's values, human rights, are a strategic interest of the United States. So is energy security. So is stopping terrorism. So is seeking peace in a place like Yemen. So we are trying to do multiple things all at once, advance along a number of different tracks. One of those tracks is, in fact, ending the blank check policy. And as I said before, the basic thrust and purpose of our policy with respect to Saudi Arabia has been to recalibrate the relationship, but not rupture it. We have stayed true to that from the beginning of this administration. Andreas, recalibrate, not rupture? Is that code for we need help with the oil price? Well, yes, this is code, but I agree with what was said previously. There is no evidence whatsoever that this trip is going to make a difference on the oil price, on inflation. Uh, you know, we know that the Saudis and the Emiratis actually have reached somewhat the end of the line when it comes to their capacity. They will not want to buy in into their, into their, into their, uh, into their reserve capacity at this point. And even if they did, the millions of barrels that they could bring online per day will not make a huge difference to bring down the oil price at the pump. So all of that is kind of window dressing. Um, I understand that obviously supply chains need to be, need to be uh, taken care of. And obviously there is a huge concern that there is this pivot of the UAE and Saudi Arabia towards Russia and China, particularly because they are oil and, and energy and interdependent growing as the oil and energy interdependencies with America are actually going down. Uh, but at, at the same time, this trip will not do very much in that respect. I think what this is about is more about security. It's about creating a new alliance. And I think the rapprochement that we will, and I say rapprochement rather than normalization, but there will be a rapprochement announced between Saudi Arabia and Israel on some uh, strategic matters. And I think that's going to be the kind of foreign policy win that Biden is looking for. But, uh, you know, as, as the previous speaker said, the issue here is 
everyone is scratching their head about why is he doing this? What is he? What is there to win for the Biden administration? Because everyone will look right through it. I mean, recalibrating this relationship at, at, for what benefit? It benefits the Saudis, benefits mm. the Israelis. But what does it really do for the Biden administration? You talk about building this alliance, and I want to take a bit of a broader view here because this is all taking place within the context of a war that's raging on in Ukraine now. The U.S. has obviously made no secret of trying to create a, a global coalition to counter Russian aggression there. So I was interested looking at some opinion polls in the Middle East, though. It, it seems that many more people and, and many more countries are more anti-American than they are pro-Ukraine. Uh, Scott, how much support is Biden actually likely to get for that agenda? Well, I'm not sure if, if Biden will get a great show of support from the Middle East, but the purpose of this trip is to keep Arab countries from going to the other side, mm. just as the U.S. did in its approach to India, where it was worried that India would become too supportive of Russia, indeed almost back the invasion, and worked for months to prevent that happening. Part of this trip here is to try to limit uh, the development of ties, which Andreas has written about, uh, you know, between Russia and Saudi Arabia over energy. Indeed, you had a Russian envoy who just recently was in Saudi Arabia. So I, I think from the standpoint of realpolitik, and, and look, human rights are expendable here. Ideals are expendable here. The idea here is to make sure not only Saudi Arabia, not only the UA, but indeed the entire Gulf area at least stays neutral in this conflict. And indeed, begins, as it were, in quiet ways to sort of support the ongoing international coalition to push back on the Russian invasion. So I suspect in September, because it's being leaked from both sides, both from uh, the Saudi side and the US side, the Saudis will increase oil production in September. Mm. How much of that will buffer the domestic situation in the United States and help Biden before November's election? I don't know. But the increase in oil production by the Saudis will send a message, which is, we're not dependent on Russia. We're not being held hostage by Russia. And that's a pretty important message at what may be a turning point in the Ukraine conflict with Kiev beginning to score some success in the battlefield. I was interested to see that Jake Sullivan, who's Biden's national security advisor, he also very recently revealed that intelligence agencies have decided that Iran was planning to aid Russia in its battle against Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Khaled, how might that shape conversations in the coming days, especially given the state of the talks around the Iran nuclear deal? Well, obviously, Iran is going to be a, a big focus of this trip, both in Israel and in Saudi Arabia. Um, so there's there's no question about that. W whether uh, whether that means there's going to be some progress at some point uh, on uh, the Iran nuclear deal, that remains to be seen. So far, we haven't seen that. So again, I think this sort of plays into this this question about uh, that that most people have about what is this trip really about. Um, but if I could just sort of go back to the the point that was raised earlier about mm -hmm. about human rights, um, I agree with the the uh, I think it was Andreas who said the uh, there's there's this huge gap between what the administration says and does, and I think that is uh, nowhere more evident than in this rhetoric about uh, about human rights. And frankly, whether we're talking about Israel or Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. the both of their records on human rights are are quite uh, abysmal, um, and we're seeing uh, the administration really give a pass, not just to those two uh, regimes, but also others that will be attending uh, the the summit in in Saudi Arabia, for example, like Egypt uh, or Jordan. Mm -hmm. um, Egypt has an especially egregious record uh, on human rights. 
there is a growing sense that this administration is really uh, prepared to, I think, trade away human rights uh, uh, and, and democracy in a way that even the Biden administration was uh, didn't go as far. Uh, I, the I, Biden I'm, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt the, you, the here because I, I do want to give Andreas a, a very quick last word, because I'm curious, in one sentence, Andreas, what would you say a successful trip would look like? There is no successful trip, um, because I, I would absolutely agree with everything that's been said at this point, is that there, this trip is going to be defined by a weak president and a weak United States that is unable to leverage whatever leverage they've left. Uh, and the say-do gap is just widening, and that leaves a credibility gap as well that are very easily be defined and, and filled by the Russians and the Chinese, who do authoritarian stability much better than the Americans. So uh, at least they are, they're very upfront and very direct about what they're doing. We'll see how it all plays out in the coming days. Well, in the meantime, though, thank you to all of our guests, Carla Del Gindi, Andreas Krieg, and Scott Lucas. Well, that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin Ung, Usama Aloni, Fongi Nguyen, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Nanda Kishore. The program was edited by Hatsam Chebal, Lin Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Please be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again on Thursday. Hi, it's Malika Bilal, host of The Take podcast. And this week, we talk about the potential risks and rewards of U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East. 